0: Well, welcome. Welcome to uh, Trinity Church. Uh, We're glad that you've chosen to spend your Sunday morning worshiping with us and hearing the Word. And if you have not gotten one, there are listening guides in the back. So if you can slip your hand up and someone will give you a listening guide so you can follow along. There's a little bit of a rough outline in there. <coughs> now, December can be a hard month for many people. It can be a time where crushing loneliness sets in for many, especially for those who have experienced the loss of a loved one or the ongoing absence of a spouse or significant other. For many people, this feeling of loss and loneliness continues into the new year and leads many to despair that they will ever experience happiness. And the phrase, have a happy new year, rings hollow in their ears, a trite phrase devoid of power to affect what it wishes. And this despair despair is not reserved for unbelievers either. Even followers of Christ can be affected by the same type of loneliness despite the hope that we have built into our confession of faith. The secret of happiness in the new year lies in the word of God. And while there is no guarantee that material prosperity will come or that loss and loneliness will never set in for the child of God, the happiness that God promises is not tied to our circumstances, but to our relationship with him that is nourished and sustained by communing with him via his word and prayer. Let's turn to Psalm 1. I invite you to turn to Psalm 1. And uh, I'm just, full disclosure, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, uh, though I know what the ESV says. So, all right, and may refer to it as we go along. Psalm 1, verse 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the righteous, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, your word and for this text especially and the the way that it calls us to um, back to your word. To delight and to meditate on it, I pray that as uh, I preached this morning, that you would awaken in us and awaken in me, especially uh, a deeper appreciation and love for your word. That um, as we go through uh, this new year, as we go into 2018, Lord, may 2018 be a year for us of fresh delight and fresh meditation on the glorious truths that many of us have been hearing for uh, years and years, that they would be fresh to us, and that uh, flourishing and happiness, um, perhaps not material flourishing, but spiritual flourishing would result as we go into this new year. I pray this in Jesus' name. So many of you, I referenced the ESV. Many of you may be looking at the ESV and saying, what does the word happy have to do with any of this? You know, ESV says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does what happy have to do with anything? Well, this word here, there are two words for blessing in the Hebrew Bible. One of them is more reserved for God's divine favor. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that this word doesn't have anything to do with God's favor or God's sovereignty, but this word doesn't simply refer to God's blessing or favor. It implies a state of happiness and flourishing that is certainly from God, but it also involves a certain character on the part of the blessed or happy man. This word is often used in wisdom literature where flourishing is linked with right behavior, And so for this reason, I'll continue to refer to the happy man throughout. Although we should not confuse this happiness with the flippant and lighthearted way that we use happy in our culture today. Psalm 1 is not Psalm 1 by accident. It occurs at the beginning of this massive book of hymns of praise to God and laments and wisdom psalms. And it lays out an introduction to the book, a template, if you will, for the righteous man and the flourishing and righteous life. It's a wisdom psalm, uh, which is why I have connected this word with wisdom literature. It's a wisdom psalm that tells us how we should live our lives and what the, the secret to this happiness, this flourishing is. So it should be tied also to Psalm 2, uh, which you can read on your own. But Psalm 2 uh, is more broad and refers to the, God's rule over the world and over the nations. It's a, this is focusing on the individual person, the individual believer, if you will, whereas Psalm 2 refers to God's rule over the nations. But it ends with the same language, and so it should be taken together with Psalm 1 as a kind of introduction to the book of Psalms. So who is the happy man? Who is he? Well, the psalmist starts by talking about what the happy man doesn't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or the advice of the wicked. So walk, you know, this is poetry. So in poetry, walk is often used to describe the way you live your life. So the, how you conduct yourself, like how you, you walk. Uh, we use the word Similarly, in many ways today, we talk, you know, talk the talk. He needs to walk the walk, you know, walk of life. And so walk refers to the way you live your life. And in this, the happy man is not characterized by conducting his life on the counsel, the advice of the wicked. Now, does this mean that we can't take... Fitness tips or diet tips from, you know, unbelievers. No. But spiritual advice, spiritual counsel, if we find ourselves turning to these significant issues, if we find ourselves turning to wicked people, to unbelievers for these, then we're on we're on the wrong track. Like we're walking in their counsel. And This can be subtle, and a lot of it does have to do with the type of company we keep. Um, We should have relationships with unbelievers, with our unbelieving coworkers, with even maybe unbelieving schoolmates. But if those relationships become close to the point where the things that they counsel us to do start to sound appealing to us, that can be a signal that we are walking in the counsel of the wicked and that we need to pay attention to our relationships with unbelievers and how they're affecting us. This can be very subtle. The happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Just think about who you turn to for advice. Who do you turn to for spiritual counsel? Um, that is going to determine how you live your life and how you obey God. Um, the wisdom literature talks a lot about wise counsel and going after wise counselors. So that is something that we need to pay attention to, make sure that we are getting our counsel from believers, from people who have that kind of character. The happy man doesn't stand in the path of sinners, or stand in the pathway with sinners. Stand, it conveys the idea of just hanging out, casually standing with sinners in their chosen way. And way here, again, in poetry, pathway, way, is often used to describe a course of life. A way of life. So, who are you just doing life with? It's not sinful to have unbelieving friends again. In fact, we should absolutely be involved in healthy relationships with unbelievers. But who makes up your crew? The people you spend the most time with, whom you turn to in desperate times. If most of your closest friends are unbelievers, then it can put you in dangerous situations. Where they can lead you astray. Surround yourself with healthy believers and do life with them. The happy man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. The imagery here of sitting calls to mind an intimate setting, perhaps even a meal. Sharing a meal in the ancient world was the ultimate sign of hospitality and intimacy. Again, the prohibition is not against sharing a meal with unbelievers. Even Jesus did. But we do need to pay attention to the people that we have our most intimate relationships with. It's not sinful to have close friendships with unbelievers, but it just means that we need to be careful not to imitate them. Sometimes this can be as easy as following the lead of a grumbling coworker. How many people have done that in the last month? I have. I have following the lead of a grumbling coworker can be imitating their ways. So that's kind of what the happy man doesn't do. In summary, he doesn't conduct his life the way that an unbeliever does, that wicked people do. What does the happy man do, though? Well, he delights in the law of the Lord, The instruction of the Lord. Delight here also implies desire. It's what the happy man wants. His desires are fulfilled by delighting in the perfect instruction of the Lord. What do you desire? Be aware that this will drive you. If you desire security, you'll be tempted to sin to get it. If you desire companionship, you'll be tempted to sin to get it. The happy man desires the law of the Lord, and he delights in it. A brief aside here, uh, the reference to the law of the Lord. David is probably talking about the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the, what we call the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For David, it reflected the character of his covenant-keeping God, who laid down laws to set apart a people devoted to his worship and delighting in him. Most of us don't read the first five books of the Bible like that, though. If we're honest, you know, we see Genesis, Exodus, especially Leviticus or Numbers, On our Bible reading plan, we think genealogies and rituals and uh, all that boring stuff. But if we read those first five books as a drudgery to be endured in our Bible in a year plan, then we don't get it. Until you understand the, for example, the earth shattering significance of the Exodus, which is the model for God's saving action in the Old Testament, you don't get it. If you don't thrill at God's self-description in Exodus 34.6 as compassionate and gracious, which is the way he is described throughout the entire Old Testament, then you don't yet understand the Torah or the Pentateuch. I challenge us to, as we read through the Bible this year, to take a fresh look and think about the way that all of the books of the Bible, especially those first five books, which are extremely important for the whole Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, and how those tell us about who our God is. That was a little bit of an aside. So, the happy man also meditates on the law, on God's instruction, day and night. This has got to be taken together with the previous section. Because meditation, pondering a text or a theme, is fueled by delight in God's law. And it, in turn, fuels delight in the Lord. This is the way of life for the happy man. He does not cease to ponder the law, to ponder God's word and what it means for his life. This time of meditation can be really difficult to get in this digital age that we live in, where information constantly bombards us and crowds out God's word. And there are ways to combat this, And they can be different for each person. One person may need to cut off consumption of media entirely. But another might decide to just leverage what he has to facilitate meditation, like through Bible apps or prayer apps or things like that. The point is we have to be living Bible-saturated lives where the Scripture permeates us. This Bible-saturated life leads to the flourishing of the happy man. So we've talked about who this person is. What's the model for the happy man? We've talked about that he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. I realize I'm probably mixing translations. Bear with me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That's who he is. And this leads to his flourishing, his prosperity. And this is compared to a tree planted beside flowing streams. Don't miss this. A tree planted beside flowing streams. Think about... The Middle East, Think about Israel. Think about the types of climate we associate with those regions. It's not a very wet climate. In fact, it's usually considered it's pretty dry there, which makes it all the more important for any type of vegetation or tree to flourish close to its source. Of life. So, this tree, the image of this happy man, is planted close to its source. Don't miss that. This tree must remain close to its source to get nourishment. So is the happy man. Whose flourishing is directly connected to his constant intake of water or spirit led meditation on God's Word. The tree bears its fruit in its season. It bears fruit when the time is right for it to bear fruit. Again, God's sovereignty. We may not always feel like we're bearing fruit, but our flourishing means that we'll bear fruit when. God's timing is right. This flourishing is perpetual. The leaf doesn't wither. Doesn't wither at all. And whatever he does prospers. This is in case we didn't get the picture. This is kind of a summary. The, the flourishing of the happy man is all-encompassing. Whatever he does prospers everything he touches prospers this is all encompassing now got to be two i have to have two caveats here even in the midst of this just glorious description the tree planted close to its source leaf not withering whatever he does prospers this is a glorious vision of what the flourishing of the righteous man or the happy man looks like. But I have to have two caveats here. Think about this, God's definition of flourishing and the world's definition don't always match up. Consider Paul who flourished in some of the most intense hardship, rejoicing in his sufferings. This flourishing doesn't always look like the way the world defines prosperity and flourishing. Two, even God's people go through seasons where they appear to be spiritually dry and barren, no matter what they do. These seasons have afflicted the most noteworthy people in our history. Even Charles Spurgeon suffered through bouts with depression. In times like these, Christians must remember that our flourishing depends on our sovereign source, not on us or our circumstances, and take comfort. But this all-encompassing flourishing is available to us. Is available to the righteous man who meditates on God's word. But in stark contrast to this perpetual flourishing, the wicked pass quickly. So perpetual flourishing, quick passing. Think about this image. Instead, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. So as enduring as the flourishing of the righteous man is, in the complete opposite is the wicked. They're like chaff. This thing that as soon as it comes in contact with the wind, it's gone. Just gone. Split second, you don't see it. Like chaff that the wind blows away. They pass quickly the wicked are not like this therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment at the end the wicked will not be able to stand on their own two feet in the midst of god's just judgment this word here for judgment is closely connected with justice this is a deserved just punishment that the wicked will receive, that sinners will receive. They will not be able to stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They won't even be able to stand alongside people, righteous people. They will not be able to stand on their own. This is us. On our own, we can't stand on our own two feet in front of a just and holy God, and we are unworthy to be counted along with the righteous. In fact, none of the characteristics or flourishing of the happy man are available to us apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we can't delight in God and his word apart from the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. And the best truth is still to come. Look at verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's think about what we just celebrated at Christmas time the coming of God the Son to dwell with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, So the ESV says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And know know is a good word there, but we have to take a step back and think about the way we think about knowledge. In our modern world, we can separate head knowledge from a relational knowledge, From a close fellowship. We can't do that with the word no here. We cannot do that. The word no here implies an intimate, close, relational knowledge. It doesn't simply mean head knowledge, devoid of relationship. No, it means that the Lord has a special and intimate relational knowledge of the path that his righteous ones take and he is with them every step of the way. And it should be understood in light of the incarnation that we just celebrated. God loves his people so much that he sent his son, whose name was prophesied as Emmanuel, God with us, to ensure that he would be able to achieve the perfect reconciled communion with us that he desires. Again, the this righteousness is, we can't get it. We can't get it. We're the wicked. We're the wicked in this story. If you thought that those first three verses are you apart from Jesus, no. You are the wicked until you accept the saving death and work of Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, can we be counted along with the righteous and begin to even think about living this life of meditation and delight in God's word? And finally, the Lord reserves destruction for the way of the wicked. Uh, this, is, this is common language for these types of this type of literature. Uh, we call it two ways. So usually it's describing you know, one way, which is the righteous way, leads to life, leads to flourishing. And the other way is the way of the wicked, which leads to ruin and destruction. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. In stark contrast to the close fellowship that the Lord has with his righteous ones, the way of the wicked ends in deserved destruction. So in conclusion, true happiness is found in the word of God in delighting in and meditating on it constantly. And while this happiness may not look like the prosperity that the world pursues, It is the only kind of flourishing that results in God's glory and our ultimate joy, regardless of our circumstances. Now, the only way that we can go from ruin to righteous is by the saving death of Christ, which is what we celebrate every week when we take communion. So we want to transition there uh, and we do, this, we do this every week. We do this to remember this saving death of Christ on the cross where his body was broken, his blood was poured out for us. Um, if you're with us and you're a believer in Christ, you're more than welcome to take communion with us, regardless if you're, if you're a member here or not. Um, if you're not a believer please hold off. This is this is a special ritual or ceremony for us to observe. And there are, we take it very seriously. I just request the hold off if you don't have that relationship with Christ. But I do invite you, even if you don't know Christ yet, to think about the way that this Picture reflects the truth that Christ had to die, his body broken, his blood poured out for your sins so that you could be forgiven in Christ. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's read, I'll read this, and if you can read with me the underlying portions. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, A couple minutes to do that self-examination. Um, search your search yourselves. Ask the Lord to search your heart and examine you to see if there is any sin that lies hidden there. And um, whenever you're ready, we'll have people standing in the back to serve communion. Uh, if you just take a piece of the bread and then dip it in the wine. Uh, that's how it will work and celebrate the Lord's death. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this picture that we have of our only hope, the death of Christ on the cross. That is the only way that your perfect justice could be satisfied so that we could be in right relationship with you. We could be reconciled to you. And I pray that you would search us, uh, that you would convict us. And uh, Lord, when we see our sin, uh, may we not despair, but may we rejoice as we celebrate this saving work that is our only hope. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.